you want to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. We have finished Philippians. I'm going into a special uh, time with Advent. And as we prepare for this Advent series, um, let me just say who you eat with says an awful lot about you. Who is welcome at your table speaks volumes about your view of yourself. That's true now. It was certainly true in the days when Jesus conducted his earthly ministry. Table fellowship was one of the most important social conventions of the ancient Near East. It's fascinating to realize then that a great deal of the teaching that came from Jesus was actually delivered over a meal of one kind or another. Sometimes it was a hastily improvised meal like the feeding of the 5,000. Sometimes it was a carefully prepared meal like the Last Supper. But almost every time he'd sit down to eat, he also sat down to teach. And as he did, controversy almost always followed. Uh, sometimes even scandal. He ate with tax collectors and sinners. The unclean and the outcast and the socially excluded were all welcomed at his table and he was welcomed at theirs, much to the chagrin and anger of the uh, religious and respectable elite of the day. And so over the next five weeks of Advent, we're gonna go to dinner with Jesus, starting today with the wedding feast at Cana of Galilee in which Jesus' public ministry uh, began. And we'll see as we study this passage in John 2, that Jesus is already pointing at the very dawn of his early ministry to the full significance of his own person and work. And we'll go with him to this wedding feast at the beginning of his earthly ministry, and we're gonna follow him through a series of meals. And so each week we're gonna look at a different meal at a different time and place in the Gospels, at different types of meals, all of them showing us something of the person and work of our Savior. And there are, if you like, many dishes that will be served. Uh, some of them will be sweet and they'll provide a deep and lasting comfort as we go to dinner with Jesus. Some of them may leave us a little uncomfortable and shaken and will be led to self-examination and repentance, two of the things we're called to do during Advent as we wait once again for the coming of the Christ. But with the help of the Holy Spirit, more than anything else, we'll be led to see Christ in all of his glory and grace as the supreme object of our devotion. The one whom we long to enjoy unbroken fellowship here and hereafter and forever. So that's what we're doing uh, for this coming uh, month or so. so. With that said, let's turn to our text today. John chapter 2 verses 1 through 11. And uh, please listen carefully as this is God's word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. 
And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we need it during Advent more than we think. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. Help us to focus on you in this season of waiting. Lord, today we come to a wonderful story told by the Apostle John. We pray that we would learn about your good gifts and your love for people and the joy that only comes from you. And so we pray, speak through the Gospel of John this morning and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. So who was Jesus? What did people see when they looked at him, when they heard him teach? when they followed him, when they lived with him. There are a great many images of Christ today that are far removed from the biblical picture. They range all the way from gentle Jesus, meek and mild, a sort of harmless, gentle spirit who no one takes seriously, to a fiery-eyed radical all set to burn everything to the ground and overthrow the establishment. And in the midst of these contradictory images, our heart sometimes longs to say, would the real Jesus please stand up? And that, of course, is who we're looking at in the Gospel of John, the real Jesus, Jesus as he really was. Dorothy Sayers, in her classic book, Creed or Chaos, wrote the following about Jesus. The Christian faith is the most exciting drama that ever staggered the imagination of man. The plot pivots on a single character, and the whole action is the answer to a single central problem, which is clearly laid before us in Matthew 22. Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? The people who hang Christ never to do them justice accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. To those who knew him, however, he in no way suggested a milk and water person. They objected to him as a dangerous firebrand. True, he was tender to the unfortunate, patient with honest inquirers, and humble before heaven. But he insulted respectable clergymen by calling them hypocrites. He referred to King Herod as that fox. He went to parties with disreputable company and was looked upon, according to Matthew 11, as a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He assaulted indignant tradesmen and threw them and their belongings out of the temple. He drove a coach and horses through a number of sacrosanct and ancient regulations. He cured diseases by any means that came handy with a shocking casualness in the matter of other people's pigs and property. He showed no proper deference for wealth and social position 
When confronted with neat dialectical traps, he displayed a paradoxical humor that affronted serious-minded people. And he retorted by asking disagreeably searching questions that, not, that could not be answered by a rule of thumb. He was emphatically not a dull man in his human lifetime. And if he was God, there could be nothing dull about God either. But to quote Shakespeare, he had a daily beauty in his life that made us ugly. And an official then felt the established order of things would be more secure without him. So they did away with God in the name of peace and quietness. Dorothy Sayers, encourage you to read Creed or Chaos. You see, the things Jesus did were simply incredible. Everywhere he went, people's breath, uh, breaths were just taken away by what he did. Time and again, their mouths fell open in amazement. And from village to village, the comments were the same. Matthew 9, and the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. Jesus was different. And to those in authority, the ruling class, the religious leaders, the political elite, different was dangerous. And we've come today to the first real sign that Jesus is different. It seems a minor event. Jesus performs a miracle, but it can really be seen as just a nice gesture at a social event. And certainly we at first hearing wouldn't consider it a dangerous move. But that's because we're looking at a first century event with 21st century eyes. So we need to look at this event using our God-given imaginations with first century eyes, or at least try to understand it according to the time and culture of Jesus' day. So on this first Sunday of Advent, we've come to John chapter 2, and we've come to a village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus has arrived to attend a wedding, the most joyous celebration that can be found in a small town. A wedding, a ceremony that begins a marriage, teaches us a great deal about God and his people. In the Old Testament, the prophet Hosea uses the image of the marriage covenant to teach about God's relationship with his people. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul shows us that the marriage relationship is symbolic of Christ's relationship with his church. And thus it's significant that Jesus' first miracle, Jesus' first sign, is performed at a wedding. And uh, I will say this coming Saturday at a wedding, Joe and Megan, hi. That God blessed this marriage by performing his first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now, as I wrote to you earlier this week, in the other Gospels, we see many of Jesus' parables are actually miracles or signs in spoken form. In John's Gospels, it's the reverse. We see many of Jesus' miracles or signs are actually parables or sermons acted out. And therefore, it's important for us to realize that there's something significant in a sign. So if this miracle is a sign, which is what the Apostle John calls it, it's a sign of something more significant than simply Jesus loves to party. We have to ask, what is the miracle a sign of? 
What is God trying to teach us in the story of this miracle of turning water into wine at a wedding in Cana of Galilee? What did it mean to them when it happened? What does it mean to us here and now? So let's see where that takes us. First of all, we need to understand that a wedding of, of that day, just like a wedding of our day, has to meet some requirements. So first we have the requirements of grace, verses one through three. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. The first thing we see is that Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Why was Jesus invited to this wedding? We don't know for sure. It's possible that he'd been invited to it in advance and he'd been on his way here when he called Philip and Nathaniel in John 1. And maybe the invitation came uh, through Nathaniel. We're told later that Cana of Galilee is Nathaniel's hometown. It may be that Jesus was invited through his mother Mary, who seems to have a prominent place at the feast. Whatever the case, the point seems to be that Jesus was welcomed. And as I read this story, I, I seem to sense that the invitation came to him as soon as the men and women of Cana learned that he had returned to Galilee. And this is the first thing that we can learn from today. The Lord ought to be invited to every wedding. After all, marriage is his idea in the first place. There would be a lot fewer broken marriages if every couple sought the Lord's presence and power and his endorsement of their uniting together. Our Lord often went to the events of people's lives and he made them holy by his presence. Second, we see that Jesus took the time to attend the wedding and to take part in the festivities. This is the first of many stories that show us that Jesus was always welcome among those who were having a good time. Sometimes we feel like we can't take the time out for social events or engagements or anything that involves other people. We're too busy, there's too much to do. And most of us who've met people that think Christians shouldn't be doing most of that stuff anyways. I mean, if someone out there is having fun, it's either illegal, immoral, or fattening. And yet we see Jesus values these occasions because they involve people and he came to be with people. And as a result, those who have enjoyed his company also took the time to listen to his teaching. And I think our Lord's example is helpful for us here. Uh, again, especially if we're struggling, it's good to be with other people, to enjoy social occasions, to build relationships, to listen to the teachings of Jesus. In this story, it's also important for us to realize uh, that first century weddings are way different than ours today. So recently, one of my sons had to go to a wedding, uh, a couple, somebody that works with him uh, from India. And the wedding lasted three and a half days. Well, in the ancient Near East, weddings generally lasted about a week. And they usually ended with this great banquet to celebrate the new life of the married couple, not unlike a reception today. And the wedding celebration is considered to be 
the grandest event in life, especially amongst the poor. Typically, the Hebrew wedding ceremony took place late in the evening following a feast, and after the ceremony, the bride and groom were taken to their home in a torchlight parade, complete with a canopy held over their heads, and they were taken by the most uh, circuitous route possible so everyone would have the opportunity to wish them well. And either before or instead of a honeymoon, they had open house for a week. And they were treated as a king and queen. They actually wore crowns and dressed in robes. And in the lives that were generally full of poverty and difficulty, this was considered the ultimate celebration. Many would plod through the rest of their lives without ever again having a celebration like this. And usually the whole village was invited and everybody came. It was considered a tremendous insult to refuse an invitation to a wedding. And therefore careful planning was needed to feed and accommodate large numbers of people for several days. And failure to do so was not only embarrassing, it was against the law. And a young couple could actually be fined a great deal of money. And often engagements were long because they had to save up all the money so they could pay for the wedding. Now, if your neighbors had provided a big wedding feast in the past, which you had attended and enjoyed, then you had a legal responsibility to provide an equivalent wedding feast when your turn came. And the groom could actually be sued by the bride's family if he didn't provide well for the guests. So this had the potential to become a financial liability that could economically cripple uh, this family for years. So we see the requirements for a wedding are fairly substantial. And the prospect of running out of wine is no small affair. This could become a huge problem for the young couple and their families. And those who are behind the scenes at that little wedding in Cana would be shattered by this breakdown in hospitality. Childhood dreams of the ideal wedding are about to dissolve in a nightmare. The drama of our text is very real. The fact that the wine ran out is probably evidence that the families were not well off. If you think about it, there's no convenience stores, no grocery stores, no place to run out to in order to get more wine. Furthermore, the rabbis of the time said without wine there is no joy. That's actually a true thing that they said. We could very well translate Mary's words, they have no wine, as they have no joy. And at this precious time of life that should be filled with everything good, joy has run out. So to run out of wine would be the equivalent of saying that the bride and groom weren't very happy. This embarrassment would be no way to start a marriage, let alone a new life in the community. They're in a difficult predicament. And so at this point, the scene shifts to Mary, who comes to Jesus with the request of grace. So we had the requirements, now we have the request. We're doing ours today for some reason. It just worked out that way. Verses four and five. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. 
His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Mary now approaches Jesus with a request that he do something. Notice she doesn't tell him what to do. She simply reports the problem to him. She probably didn't realize how Jesus could solve the problem, but she knew her son was capable of solving problems. She had confidence that he'd be able to save the situation, although she couldn't have known or understood what Jesus was about to do. She trusted him to do the right thing. And there's a lesson for us there too. Many times we don't trust that Jesus is able to solve our problems unless we know exactly how, as though we're gonna to have to approve it first. We need to learn to have the confidence that the Lord is able to solve our problems. Then also that he's able to help us when we find ourselves in situations we don't fully understand and we need to prayerfully trust him to do the right thing. Now, volumes have been written about Jesus' response. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, I don't know about you, but if I had ever addressed my mom as woman, I probably wouldn't be standing here this morning. Uh, if any of my children had addressed their mother that way, I would have less children or something like that. I hope they're gonna listen to that part. Um, and it sounds harsh. The reality is it doesn't sound harsh at all in the original language. It's actually a courteous remark. Uh, woman was used in Jesus' day in the same way that man would be used in the South today. And so he addresses her as woman twice in, this, in the Gospel of John. Once at the end of the Gospel when he's on the cross and he's tenderly giving Mary into John's care. So he's not responding to her with a rebuke. It's more of a reminder. He's reminding her that his hour hasn't come yet. As we'll see later, uh, you see in the Gospel of John, um, by his hour, he's referring to the cross. But this time at a wedding is not the appropriate time for a public display of his power. I'm sure Jesus doesn't want to take the focus of the celebration away from the couple by getting everyone's attention on himself. And yet, I think his heart must have gone out to this young couple who found themselves in a tough situation. And Jesus goes on to solve their problems in his own way. Very quietly, without a lot of fanfare or dramatics, we see the Lord working silently behind the scenes in an hour of need. A miracle, a sign, performed not to quench his own thirst, but to meet the needs of others, to ease his mother's anxiousness, to save a couple of newlyweds from embarrassment, to provide a joyous celebration for a small weary village. It'd be wise to note verse five, Mary's comment to do whatever he tells you. It's another good example of faith. Although she doesn't know what Jesus is gonna do, she's perfectly content to leave the matter in his hands. This is the only command we ever see Mary give in the Bible. And it's the best command. In the same sense, this is the best counsel that one person can give another. Give them a Bible, show them Jesus, and tell them do 
whatever he tells you. So now that the matter has been placed in Jesus' hands, what does he do? Well, he takes something common, something ordinary, something that wouldn't have otherwise been noticed, and he uses it to demonstrate the radical nature of grace. Verses 6 through 8, the radical uh, the radical change of grace. I'm sorry, the radical change of grace. It says there, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. So verse 6 gives us, at first glance, the seemingly insignificant detail that there's six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Now, if this seems like a lot of water for washing, remember there's a regular need for ceremonial purification. Before eating, everyone would have a servant pour water over their hands. And at the uh, wedding celebration, as I said, this goes on for a week. It's several days. Um, you got to do this over and over and over again. And so they need a lot of water. And But these ritual hand washings, they're actually needed to fulfill the requirements of the Old Testament ceremonial law. And so having these six stone water jars for purification is a reminder to them and to us that all is not well. And there's a need greater than not having enough wine. Water from the jars is for the washing away of dirt, symbolizing the washing away of sin, but it doesn't work. It's tasteless and colorless and joyless. And while it takes off the dirt, it doesn't take away the sin. And here we're struck by the emptiness of the old covenant. The cry of the spiritual needy, the yearning to have their hearts filled with something other than ritual religion. The jar held the water for washing the outside of a person. But the empty water jars represent the old requirements for continual purification under the law, which is we're about to see Jesus is going to replace with something better. So we read that they took the six stone water jars there for purification and they filled them to the brim. Each of the jars held 20 or 30 gallons. So we're talking 120 to 180 gallons of wine. That's a lot of wine. If there's four quarts to a gallon and each quart yields six glasses of wine, that is a minimum total of 2,800 glasses of wine. And this is why people say Jesus is the life of the party. But think about it. It's a great wedding gift to this couple. First, Jesus says, fill, fill the jars with water, and they fill them to the brim. But notice, there's no command, no shouting, no pleading, no laying on of hands, no binding of Satan, no hocus pocus, no mumbo jumbo. He simply says, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Now, the master of the feast would have been sort of equivalent to the best man, but it'd be like the best man, the MC, the wedding planner, and the DJ all rolled into one. So 
whether this wedding works or not is totally up to this person who's called the master of the feast. And he says, just take it to the master of the feast. The water simply becomes wine. I love the way the 18th century English poet Alexander Pope summarized this miracle. Actually, I think this is one of the best lines written in English literature. He says, the conscious water saw its master and blushed. I think that's brilliant. Now, the jars had been used for the ritual of ceremonial washing and preparation for the wedding feast. But now that the groom of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, is here, they will be used as part of the wedding feast itself. The rituals have become meaningless in the presence of the Messiah. He fulfills and replaces Old Testament rituals. This is a vivid sign and symbol that the old ways of doing things have passed. The new and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ has come. And when the new has come, he brings the reward of grace. Look at verses 9 and 10, the reward of grace. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, but when people, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus rewards us with his presence. Now we're not told if Jesus brought a gift which would have been expected. And he had five disciples with him and they probably came empty handed too. And we don't know if Jesus and the disciples were expected to be there. After all, they had just been down with John the Baptist near Jericho, Canaan, uh, Cana, at some distance away. And certainly six extra men at the wedding feast would have a lot to do with the wine running out. And Jesus supplies new wine in six jars, one for each member of his party. He attends the wedding, participates in the happiness, averts disaster, and supplies the joy. He reveals a small measure of his glory as he wipes away the ceremonial uh, rituals and gives us a taste of the heavenly banquet. Later on in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John is going to call it the wedding feast of the Lamb. When Jesus unites with his bride, the church, in glory, and we're reminded by the presence of Christ at this wedding here on earth that someday there'll be a wonderful wedding in heaven. And if you know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, you have an invitation to that banquet. Revelation 19.9 says, The angel said to John, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. You know, like most people, we tend to bring out the best first. We dress up, we put on our best manners, we clean up the front rooms of the house and hope the guests don't find their way to the bedrooms where we've shoveled all the mess. And we clean up and make everything look nice so we can pretend it always looks that way. Not so with the Lord. With him, the best keeps coming right up to the end. If our Lord had preached a sermon after he left the wedding, what do you think he'd have said? I think, and this is just a guess, the Bible doesn't say, so this is just my guess, that likely he would have told the people the world's joy always runs out. 
that it always leaves you feeling empty and can never be regained, but the joy he gives is new and never runs out. It's always satisfying and can never be lost. Now Jesus is confronted with a problem. No wine, no joy, old ways. And he doesn't just stand there, he brings out the best at the end. You need to feel this way down deep inside. What has he done? 2,800 glasses of wine of the best vintage for one little wedding party in a backwater village. What does that mean? Jesus not only turned the old water into new wine, he provides it in abundance. I mean, this is so like the Lord who gave wine in abundance, who oversupplied the loaves and fishes so there was a basket left over for each one of his disciples. And who said in John 6, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The old water of the law, without taste or strength, has run out. However, the new wine of Christ has been poured out, and there's enough for everyone. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 4.19, our text from last week, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. There is not only an enormous amount of new wine, it is the best wine. There's nothing equal to it. The point is the wine Jesus provides is superior, as is everything that's connected to the new life that Jesus gives. Just as the wine Jesus made was the best, so new life in him is better than life on our own, under our own power. Our Lord never gives the mediocre. He never gives his people just the, whatever he can get away with. He has nothing but the best. And that's just as true for empty lives as it is for empty jars. Like these newlyweds, the universal experience of humanity apart from Christ is that there comes a time when the wine runs out, when the joy and exhilaration of life are gone. No matter who you are, no matter what wines you've tested, there comes a time when the exhilaration of life wears out. For some it comes sooner, for others later. Often it's when life is at its very best that the wine gives out. We're full of health, money increases, friends multiply, we have an abundance to eat, plenty to drink, and a warm place to sleep. And then the wine runs out, and life loses its sparkle. And for some, it can happen in the teenage years. It has become an epidemic in the college years. It is common in the middle years. And ultimately, it catches everyone. It's what makes this miracle so important. Every one of us will find out that the exhilaration of this life, if that is our focus, then failure is inevitable. Think about the message being given to all of our young people. They are constantly hearing the word tell them, the world tell them that you only go through life once, get all you can, live life with passion. You need to hear this message. People cope in different ways. Many settle for gray days and clench their fists and determine to gut it out and just get on with life. Many become bitter, some become resentful, some fight, some give up hope. All need the joy of knowing Jesus. 
The old water of the law without taste or strength has run out. However, the new wine of Christ has been poured out and there is enough for everyone. And so after this radical change, after this reward, what are the results? What are the results of grace? Verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. When Jesus at a wedding poured out more good wine than anyone had ever seen, those who had eyes to see and ears to hear recognized that the future blessings of the heavenly kingdom were present in the miracle of Jesus. And so John writes, this is the first of his signs and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is a story of change. In this miracle, our Lord brought fullness where there was emptiness. He brought joy where there was disappointment. He brought cleansing for the inside where there had only been washing for the outside. Jesus didn't just come to tidy up the old system. He came to change it. He came to change people, to change them dramatically, and to put new power in their lives. Jesus loves us too much to leave us the way we are. He wants to change us. And the water of the ceremonial ritual, the water used in accordance with the people's focus on the law as the way to salvation, is changed by Jesus Christ into the wine of the gospel. The Lord makes the way of salvation clear that by believing we might have life in his name. And that's what the disciples did. They saw the sign. They understood the meaning of what Jesus had done. They knew that Jesus' miracles were never just displays of power meant to impress the masses, but they were signs, significant events that point beyond themselves to deeper spiritual realities that can only be perceived with the eyes of faith. And because the disciples looked for the spiritual meaning, their faith was strengthened. The scriptures teach us that Jesus expressed joy. Jesus spoke of laughter in heaven when sinners repent on earth. Surely Jesus laughed at his nightly dinners with his disciples when little children played at his feet. And I think especially when the blind and the lame danced all around because they were no longer blind and lame. I can imagine the smile of this sheer astonishment, the overwhelming joy of his friends at the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Jesus was good at bringing joy. And it all started at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. In the spiritual life, memories from the past and redemption for the future are waiting to be wed. Folks who have broken promises and betrayed trust and compromised truth and practiced poor stewardship can start over at Cana. Individuals for whom religion is a burden and guilt is a constant companion can find relief in Cana. People who've blown opportunities, wasted days, failed at major tasks will flock to Cana if they truly comprehend what can happen there. Cana is the place where the old is gone and the new has come. And when the new has come, he brings with him joy. Jesus told his disciples, 
come and you will see. These men went with him and they saw. They saw Jesus turn water into wine. They saw Jesus turn law into grace. They saw Jesus turn disappointment into joy. They saw Jesus change lives in radical ways. And it says, and his disciples believed in him. Jesus said, come and you will see. What will you see? Think about that. Perhaps you should pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Jesus, we bow before you. We confess our impatience for your coming. We can't wait for that wedding feast you invite us to, the place where we can lay down our broken promises and betray trusts, and in turn receive fulfilled promises an unfailing trust. Bring us to the new Cana and the new Jerusalem, the time and place of unlimited joy, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And Lord, we're told in the Gospel of John, these things were written that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. Teach us now to trust you this Advent as the bridegroom of the church and the master of the feast. Grant that we may live like people who wait for you with anticipation and who wait on you with Advent joy. And as we do that, draw us ever closer to the one who brings us radical change and radical rewards here and hereafter and forevermore. Your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.